Um, presumably, you can see uh, the slide here. Um, first of all, I'd like to um, welcome uh, everyone to uh, the AOM Strategic Management Division's Meet the Scholar program. Um, so if you haven't uh, attended one of these yet, you're in for uh, a treat. Um, these sessions are part of the division's uh, Stronger Together initiative, which you can now see above my head here, the new <laughs> background that Samina uh, and company have uh, kindly provided us. Um, and it's one of many uh, uh, initiatives to increase opportunities for the community to get to know uh, prominent members uh, of the Strategic Management Division. Uh, and um, in doing so, you know, building the community that perhaps uh, we need now more than ever. Uh, when Katerina and I started chatting, we both agreed that we miss the community part of this, right? You don't see people like you do normally at conferences and things. So uh, hopefully these are something to maybe fill that void uh, a little bit. A big thanks to uh, to, uh, to uh, Katerina for uh, helping with the technology part of this. Uh, she has done this several times and uh, has pointed out my Zoom deficiencies. So I... <laughs> that is not uh, true. <laughs> um, so for those that don't know me, my name is John Joseph. I'm Associate Professor of Strategy here at the University of California, uh, Irvine in Orange County, uh, the land of COVIDians. Uh, and uh, I am uh, an executive uh, member, I'm a member of the executive committee of the STR uh, division. Uh, of course, a big thank you to uh, Samina and uh, the STR division for putting these together. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, be part of it and of course, uh, be part of uh, this particular one uh, because uh, of course, Mike Tushman, uh, who you all know and, and, and know his work, uh, I've uh, followed uh, since I was a PhD student. So um, it's very, very exciting to, to play this role here. Um, before we begin, um, just a few, uh, first of all, the agenda, we're gonna go about an hour with uh, uh, sort of guided questions uh, that I have prepared. So we'll engage in a dialogue after that, we'll open it up to uh, general Q&A. Uh, if questions have uh, occurred to you along the way, um, please feel free to enter them into the chat box. And once we get to that part of the program, I'll have you uh, kind of read them off or I can read them off uh, when we get there. Um, I, we ask that you stay on mute uh, just until that part of uh, the program, just to, to limit the background noise. Um, and um, I think uh, you'll, and this is gonna be an exciting uh, uh, bit of time here. So first of all, uh, I would like to welcome uh, our uh, distinguished scholar, uh, Mike Tushman, for joining us today. So welcome uh, to our Zoom session. So um, there is, you know, here is uh, somebody who is, let's see here now, I just have to move my slide here. Here we go. Um, it's impossible to fit his Vita on uh, <laughs> one slide. But uh, let, me, let me talk about a few of the highlights. He is, of course, a Baker Foundation uh, professor. He's the Paul Lawrence MBA class of 1942 professor of business administration. Uh, Meredith at the Harvard Business School. He's also the Charles B. Tech Thornton chair of the Advanced Management Program, uh, HBS. Uh, he was previously a professor at Columbia uh, GSB uh, from 76 to 98, and he received his PhD from uh, MIT. 
Um, the word distinguished scholar, I think, is apt in so many ways. Uh, he is officially a distinguished scholar. Um, uh, the Academy of Management Divisions, Technology and Innovation Management, 1999. Uh, he was named distinguished scholar by the OMC division in 2003 uh, and the ODC division in, uh, in 2016. Uh, he received the 2013 Career Achievement Award for distinguished scholarly contributions to management. Uh, he was elected fellow of the Academy of Management in 96. Uh, he won the Sumatra Rochelle Award for rigor and relevance in the study of management. That's absolutely true. Anybody knows Mike's work that is, you know, just an exemplar of, of both rigor and relevance uh, in 2011. Uh, and he's a foundation scholar in the Knowledge and Innovation Group of, of SMS. Um, his research, obviously, with 86,000 citations uh, plus and growing, uh, and by the way, a thousand of the, uh, 24 of those have a thousand more or, cite or more citations each. Um, it, he's got certain, many, many journals and, and books that I won't uh, uh, go into detail on. Uh, but his research, as you know, is at the intersection of executive leadership, tech change, organizational adaptation. Um, and importantly, his ideas have served as the foundation of a number of areas that we study, including information processing, congruence, fit, uh, and ambidexterity, of course, among John, other areas. John, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's a little bit garbled. I don't know if your internet connectivity is a little bit fuzzy where you are. Really? Okay. Um, no, I'm not sure why that would be the case. I'm actually uh, in my office, so. Can you hear me just fine? Yes. All right. Maybe Wait. maybe it's the microphone then. Um, I'm not sure. If I sit closer, was this better? Yes, it sounds like. It mm -hmm. did sound better when you were closer. Okay, I can sit a little bit closer if that helps. Yeah. That's much better. Okay, Thank you. so maybe it's, it's a bad mic. It's a Lenovo laptop. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, Hopefully you captured most of that uh, introduction. It's certainly on the slide. Um, he's, he's got a number of papers that have won awards. Um, uh, you know, Academy Management's Best, Best Paper Award with Mary Benner in August of 2004. A few others I have listed here. Uh, and lastly, uh, and any of those that knows why he has as many teaching awards as he does. Uh, and, uh, and, and he is a vanguard in executive education as well. So uh, welcome uh, to our conversation, Mike Tushman. Wow, gee, John, thank you very much. That was like, wow. Thank you for all the attention to that introduction. So let's, let's start, Mike, by dialing back the clock, if we, if we could. Uh, and find out, um, you know, what attracted you to academia, and you know, how did how did the road lead you uh, to being a scholar and a and a teacher? Yeah. So first of all, let me uh, thank you, John, for organize helping organize this particular session, and uh, Samina for organizing this whole thing with um, a range of really fantastic faculty. Uh, and for Katerina for getting us organized also. And to all the doctoral students uh, here in this session, um, like what a time to be a doctoral student. Uh, 
I don't think it gets any better given the sort of confluence of where our fields have been going and this pandemic we're living through. So um, I'll look forward to engaging with you in these two hours uh, on whatever you want to talk about. Um, so John, what was the first question again? How, uh, what was the first so question? The road, the road to academia. You know? oh, the road, yeah. yeah, the road to academia um, was, uh, you know, pretty straightforward for me. I was uh, a double E at Northeastern. Um, and as any of you know, certainly Samita knows, Northeastern is like a magnificent university. By the way, it's gotten way better since I left. Uh, but the hallmark of Northeastern is the co-op program. And I spent, uh, as a double E, I spent five years working for a company that was the best, the very best test equipment company in the industry. And while I was there, studying to be an electrical engineer, like all the company proceeded to fail. And I was in a carpool. This is literally how I got into the field. I was in a carpool going back and forth from uh, West Medford, Samina, to Concord, where General Radio was located. Um, and these engineers who were the best in the test equipment business were all out of a job. And I thought at that time that if you were a great engineer, that was the way to prosperity and the future. And these guys were all out of jobs. So I essentially stopped being an electrical engineer to study this phenomenon. What the heck happened to this firm that was the best and probably went out of business in the face of Hewlett Packard, Tektronics, Keithley and Fluke, who came into the industry with a completely different technology regime. And essentially, I left Northeastern, left the world of Double E land to uh, study organizations, technology, innovation, first at Cornell um, with a great group of faculty and uh, peers. And then I went to MIT because MIT had, at that time, a really super program on technology management. So it was the scarring of my work, my co-op work. Had I not gone to Northeastern, had I not like lived through this failure, I would have been some like depressed engineer someplace now. Um, but that experience has led me, led me to academia. And I've been essentially studying that question, you know, for my whole career. You know, eventually, what I've often said is I've, I've wanted to help my carpool friends understand what the heck happened. And at this stage in my career, I think I know what happened. Um, and I think I can help. That's the beauty of our field, everybody, is um, the research we do as individually and a community can actually shape practice. And um, anyways, that's how I get into the field, John, is through the failure of this once great technology firm and I, I'd been sort of grappling with that, you know, for a whole bunch of years. So you, uh, you land uh, in a PhD program and um, maybe Mike, you could share a little bit about, you know, what, what surprised you about uh, academic life at that point or, or as if even maybe as a junior uh, scholar, uh, what were, what, uh, you know, what, what came, were you, were you prepared for what happened? <laughs> Well, I, I, my doctoral program at MIT, I, I was 
blessed by a great university. The Sloan School was and is great. Uh, I had a magnificent committee. And those of you who are doctoral students, I didn't really know at the time, what, in retrospect, anyways, I had a committee where Tom Allen was my chairman. And Ed Shine was on my committee um, and Paul Lawrence. Paul was visiting MIT from Harvard. And uh, Tom, <laughs> when I was, I was, Tom and Ed, I learned, basically hated each other. And I had to deal, I had to deal with their tension. And it turns out Tom was a certain kind of researcher with a certain kind of theoretical framework. Ed was a certain kind of researcher with a certain kind of framework. Paul was like amazingly, you know, was a co collegial with both of them. And somehow I survived. That was my first surprise as wow. Major league tensions in our field. Oh, actually, even, even before that, I was at Cornell. I don't know if anyone from Cornell is in this session. I was a school of industrial labor relations. And as I left Northeastern, I went to ILR. And my first year there, there was a conference in honor of ILR's 25th or some, some anniversary. And in the room were uh, Chick Perot, Jim Thompson, Chris Argerus, <laughs> young Howard Aldrich, uh, and young Marshall Myers, among others. And what I witnessed there, and I was like a master's student, was a real tension convention in our field. I said, oh my God, these guys are going after each other. By the way, there were no women in the room. There were no women faculty there at the time. Um, that has changed for the better. Um, but one of the surprises, John, was the number of fractures in our field and the disciplinary points of view and how people were in silos. And one of the things that I really, I didn't like that. I said, hey, we're, we're in a world, OB or organizational theory or strategy or innovation, wherever you are, it crosses those disciplines. So I was kind of surprised at that. I was surprised at the tensions in our field way back then. Um, and where the real synergy comes, certainly in terms of my work is crossing boundaries. And I, I have, maybe I, I've never really said this before. I think I've, I've always worked hard to not categorize myself as an OB person or a strategy person or an innovation person, but I study a particular problem from different perspectives. So that, that was a, like a surprise. And the tension actually led to, for me, important creativity, de dealing with those tensions. You mentioned a few uh, folks there, and I'm wondering, you mentioned Paul and Tom, obviously, and Ed, um, and others uh, at, at, uh, as you got into the field. I'm wondering who you might uh, highlight as your early inspirations and folks that might have been instrumental in your early career. Yeah. Um, sir, uh, er, so sort of those faculty who really inspired me, well, partly was Tom Allen, my chairman, in his sort of rigor on studying things scientifically and getting really hard data. He was, he was looking at sociometric data at the time on physical location and the propensity to communicate and the impact of that on 
performance in R&D. So he was a real, like, inspiring, like, scientist. Um, I, I, I worked, when I was at Cornell, Carl Weick was there, and I was, like, totally in awe of Carl. Now, it was a totally different space, but his ability to think out of the box and think creatively, I would think he was in that, uh, someone, uh, someone who's inspired me. Um, Jim March, I mean, all my work <laughs> has been inspired by Jim March and his like awesome creativity. Um, uh, and Paul, I guess, you know, early in my career, really shaped by Paul Lawrence, who was, uh, who first taught me the importance of rigor, just like Tom, and relevance, just like Tom. Where, where, where kind of Jim really didn't care about practice and Carl totally didn't care about practice. Uh, Paul Lawrence and Tom Allen really did. And I, uh, that, that really, that, this notion of rigor, both empirically and theoretically, and having an impact on the world, that, that, those, those are the factors that come to mind right now as sort of, sort of early inspirations in my career. So, and, and a few of those are, are uh, you know, obviously have been colleagues and co-authors. Um, looking at your early Vita uh, in, the, in the first few papers, first of all, it's impressive uh, that, you know, upon graduation or, or, or immediately after, you got a, an AMR, two AMRs, an AMJ, an ASQ, uh, right out of the bat. Um, I'm wondering, um, you know, in those early papers for you, uh, if, is there one in particular that, uh, you know, has special uh, meaning? And if so, uh, why? Um, my first sort of chunk of work based on my dissertation was on gatekeeping, boundary spanning. And I, I think perhaps my only sole authored paper was that ASQ piece on boundary spanning. Um, I mean, that's near and dear to my heart, but, but I, I kind of, and all that early, my early work on information processing and social networks and performance in R&D and then more generally in innovation. Um, that got me tenure and I'm like sort of super proud of that. I mean, I went from MIT to, court, to uh, Columbia and that, that social network work sort of was the foundation of my promotion at Columbia uh, in New York City. Uh, I, I was, I, I kind of was not in the growing Burtian world and uh, sort of the Ron Burt sense of social location and boundary spanning was really different than mine. I, I kind of then sort of left that because I, I was less interested in, in networks as such to um, this sort of general radio problem. How can this company, why did this company fail? And so my work with uh, Elaine Romanelli and Phil, and Elaine Romanelli on punctuated change and Phil Anderson on uh, dis uh, discontinuities and dominant designs. Uh, and then Mary Benner, um, on the inverse relationship between process innovation, process intensity and innovation. I mean, th those are the works that really, um, I think I'm most excited about because it, it, was, it was fresh work at the time theoretically and 
fresh work empirically and it cut across these boundaries that that it was it was hard for people to code just what the heck is Phil Anderson or what who the heck is Mary Banner and you know Elaine Romelli and, and and me is that we were trying to we were studying a problem through different angles. So I I think the the uh, and the work that has been most cited is the work on technical change, punctuated change, competence enhancing, competence drawing, dominant designs. Um, so that's the work that 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 then got off got me off and my future students with a whole range of stuff on evolution. Most recently, this piece that you mentioned, John, with uh, Ryan Raffaele and um, Marianne Glynn on on identity, basically identity dynamics and organization. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But but the, but the sociometric work was really important. Um, but again, I wanted to be more than just R and D. I wanted to be more innovation focused, and that transition post tenure um, with amazingly great doctoral students. At some point, we should talk about the role of doctoral students for faculty, but that I've had the amazing honor to work with um, some pretty outstanding doctoral students. Yeah, so um, since you brought it up, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll use this as a, as a chance to, to talk about that since that's obviously an important part and, and you know, you, you've had such great uh, success with doctoral students. I happen to have uh, emailed a few of them uh -huh. uh, <laughs> to to uh, solicit some uh, some thoughts. So what I'll do is I'll maybe just read a few, and then we could talk a little bit about uh, your approach to working with doctoral students and and uh, you know things that you uh, pass along. So um, uh, first, I have uh, Adam Kleinbaum here. Um, uh, he uh, he uh, was kind enough to write a whole lot, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna shorten it a bit here. But he says I routine. He's talking about meeting meeting with you. He routinely began our meetings, which usually took place at Pete's Coffee, where Mike shared customer of the month honors with his dog by saying, <laughs> Adam, you are such a good writer, but dot, dot, dot. And he would proceed to tear apart whatever morsel of thought I had sent him before the meeting. He goes on to say, by the end of it, uh, I felt like he had helped me make the work better in tangible ways. I felt he energized me to take the insights that emerged from our conversation and implement them. And third, I came away from those connections feeling like he had great confidence that I would be able to do it. Wow, how wonderful. Um, Liz Altman, um, who um, we, we bonded over our interest in, and the history with Motorola, um, said, Mike has helped me navigate uh, helped me navigate the transition from industry to academia by modeling what a great scholar and business school professor should be with patience and a firm hand when necessary. He inspired, encouraged, and led me to finish my dissertation uh, and graduate. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have to mention Mary Benner, who also kindly provided a, a quote here. Um, uh, she said, he cheered me on through the roadblocks in my dissertation. When I stumbled through questions I couldn't answer, he has continued to be my advisor ever since, his co-author and friend. Mike gave me some memorable advice. Mike said, do research that is provocative. You, you, John, you're, you're cutting out there. You're cutting out there, John. Uh, Mike said, can you hear me now? Yeah. 
do research that is provocative. It should change how people think. He also said, be known for a question. Don't be known for a method or a data set. He has guided many scholars to finding interesting questions and rigorous answers. So a wonderful, a wonderful testament to you, Mike, uh, that your students are so uh, effusive and, and rightfully so. But maybe you could give us a little insight on, on um, you know, working, choosing uh, doctoral students. Yeah. Um, it, it has been sort of the, what's the right word? Um, an anchor to my career is working with, with doctoral students. Um, uh, being in schools at Columbia and uh, at HBS, and then I, I visited at INSEAD and a bit at Bocconi. Um, these schools with doctoral programs, uh, I know not all schools have doctoral programs, and I know doctoral programs in general are under attack. But man, I would not have done what I have done as a scholar had it not been for like amazing doctoral students. Um, I always work with students um, who are interested in the topic of like how come general radio failed? I mean, I've been hung up on that like from the get-go. And as long as they were interested in that general topic um, and we hit it off, I, I, I that was my criteria, were their, their ability to really work hard, um, to have a theoretical bent and an empirical bent. And one of the recipes in working with doctoral students is, yeah, working on a problem rather than a methodology, being eclectic theoretically, and being willing to have heterogeneous committees. All the committees uh, of the students you just read and all my other students that we've worked to build heterogeneity into the committee. So they're kind of like wacky committees that represented different points of view. Uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, John, but th those are the criteria I use to select students, the students who could help me push my research agenda. So that it was always related to technology, organizations, evolution, and, you know, for example, with Wendy Smith, more recently with Wendy and Adam, uh, here at HBS. I mean, um, I was not interested in paradox. I was interested in ambidexterity, structural ambidexterity. And my, my work with uh, Charles, with Charles O'Reilly, um, Charles was not a student. Charles and I were colleagues from the get-go. He and I were students together. Um, he was in California, I was in the East Coast. And we began to work together and eventually got onto this topic of structural ambidexterity. But I wasn't interested in paradox until Wendy said, hey, you know, what about these senior teams dealing with contradictory strategic agendas? And so I quickly moved with Wendy into that topic of paradox. Um, with, with Adam, it was um, innovation across multiple boundaries. This happened to be at IBM. And he took a social network approach. So it was always with students who had some kind of interest in the general topic of evolution of firms and technology, and then building committees that were, so they would they they left the program uh, with an escape velocity that was rooted in a super question 
really neat theory and kind of bulletproof data and methods. That was, that's sort of my recipe in working with students. And, and along the way, trying to write, you know, for example, with Mary, trying to write together a theoretical piece, our AMR piece, which was uh, like a really magnificent piece. And then at least one empirical piece that spoke to a piece of the, of the theory paper, of the AMR paper. That was also part of the recipe of, of both theory, uh, empirics, in, in multiple articles. It sounds like that the part of, part of when you're working with a student and putting together a committee is seeking the diversity, the heterogeneity. Of course, that is probably, um, on the other side of that is the tension convention you mentioned. Right. And to, right. you know, since we have a lot of doctoral students on the, you know, participating, wondering what your advice is on that, on that particular balance. Yeah, uh, my advice on that is um, one is diversity is really important. Um, and have a chair who has your back. The chair of your committee, whoever he or she may be, they need to know, they need to help you, but choose the committee in a, in a way that's gonna help you do a great dissertation and you're gonna land with a fine job. And I think part of that is building in heterogeneity, um, is to, to help protect you from these various wars that are playing out in our field. Um, so that, that you get the benefits of the tension, but it doesn't, you don't get swamped by it. So having a chair that kind of knows it and has your back. Yeah, and clearly you have, have done that for your students uh, based on my interactions with them and knowing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really tried that. I, I, uh, I, I really, yeah, I did. I've tried that, John. So uh, maybe more generally, Mike, in terms of, you know, your interests have revolved around a similar theme, but obviously different angles of it. How have you approached yourself and with your students uh, finding questions that interest you, uh, finding, uh, you know, subjects to study? Um, what sort of been, uh, how have you, how have you, how does that process work for you? And you know, had to change from your earlier days to, to kind of where we are now. Yeah. Um, so the questions, the questions have always been rooted in some innovation problem. Like early on, it was how come some R and D settings were differentially more effective than others, and then it went from it went from the R and D lab to the firm, how come some firms make it through technological discontinuities, not others? Um, and then that led into this notion of structural, you know, basically Jim March's explore and exploit. Gee, how do you build organizations to explore and exploit? Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a basically basic organizational theory challenge there big debate in the field about you know kathy and i've had this long debate about evolution 
uh, Clay, Christian, and I had a long debate. So a lot of debate on that, how you both explore and exploit. But so that, that, that led to a bunch of questions, John. That then led to, uh, hey, wait, if there, if there is exploring and exploit going on simultaneously, uh, then Wendy's thing on paradox, gee, it, it has to start with the senior team and they have to grapple with paradox. Uh, and then most recently with Marianne Glenn and Ryan, we sort of fell into, I shouldn't say fell into it, but that then naturally led to this notion of identity because identity, who we are and what we do is the overarching frame within which structural ambidexterity can happen. So uh, it, to me, it was one thing leading to another. And it, it wasn't that lights went on one day and said, hey, let's study paradox or let's study structural ambidexterity. It all led from one question led to another, led to another. Being pushed by doctoral students. Oh, and by the way, one of the one of my one of my um, if, if there's a recipe in my career, everybody, uh, it was partly teaching well enough in the MBA program so the students didn't end up in the dean's office complaining about Mike Tushman. So I had to teach well enough in the MBA program. But my real passion was this doctoral course. I taught it for many, many years, um, an organizational theory course. Innovation, organizations, organizational theory, you call it different things in different places. But I basically recruited all my doctoral students through this organizational theory innovation course. Um, so working in the doctoral program was really important at Columbia, um, at INSEAD, uh, uh, and here at HBS. The other thing that I just want to get on the table, and maybe we'll talk about it later on, is really on in my career, um, I said, hey, what are important problems? And I discovered that, that through executive education, I would learn what important problems are. So really early in my career at Columbia, I recruited Charles, Charles O'Reilly and Jeff Pfeffer. And I pushed the administration at Columbia to let me start a program on leading innovation and change, something like that. And the answer was no, I literally really pushed it. Anyway, so that began a run that has been going on since maybe in that 1985. I mean, a long time. First it was me, Charles and Jeff, and then Jeff peeled off and me. And to this day, Charles and I still do a course, leading change and organization renewal at Stanford and at Harvard. Um, and, and the point of that is, is when, when um, like Lori Rosenkopf was interested in boundary spanning in ecosystems. And when, when Lori, and I, was, I would always introduce my doctoral students to these exec ed sessions. <laughs> when Lori goes in front of a group of executives and talks about these ecosystems and boundary spanning, and the participants say, hey, Lori, that's important. I know that's important because the phenomena is saying it's important, not, not organizational theory types or not strategy types, not innovation types, but the phenomena is saying, hey, Laurie, that's important. 
when 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 Mary said when we cooked up this idea there's an inverse relationship between process intensity and at the time of her dissertation there was the wave of Demingism and we had that insight that Deming would be inversely associated with innovation and we actually presented that to these executives and they said what a great idea I'm feeling that I said to Mary that's a dissertation let's go there so using exec and I don't want to be disrespectful for MBAs, but MBAs are clueless. In terms of the real phenomena, they just haven't a clue. They are going to be managers. When you're actually talking to managers, that's where I have and my students have gotten insight. So I've really hyper leveraged executive education for me and my doctoral students in the idea generation phase. And <laughs> frequently they would say, that idea is terrible. Don't go there. We wouldn't do it. But when, when you get feedback that, hey, when, when Marianne Glynn and Ryan and I talked about the stuff on identity, not personal identity, but organizational identity, and these executives went there, I said, hey team, let's go there. Even though our work on identity flew in the face of the identity crowd, uh, we don't have to go into that, but there is a whole identity crowd out there that we had to do some battle with. But hey, that's okay. We, we, I, I knew it was important because, because of executive education. That was a rambling thing, John, but it was, it was part of this recipe of, of with doctoral students choosing problems and the problems shifting over time because the world shifts over time. But you bring up a great point and actually you, um, you answered the, the next question I was going to ask is sort of link, you know, for, for, for junior folks, you know, is it a good idea to bring your research into the classroom, uh, vice versa? How do you do that? Um, because I think we all would like to, but it's not often easy to do uh, for, for uh, MBA audiences. Wait, so, so say the question again, you, using our research in the MBA classroom? Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. the degree that that's yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah. So here, I have a, I get a strong point of view on that. I have a strong point of view on a lot of things, John. I think our field from Fritz Roethlisberger, Chester Barnard, I, back in the 30s or whatever it was, up to 2020, has an enormous amount to say to practicing managers and an enormous amount to say to MBAs. I think it's incumbent upon us to put it in a way that is um, perceived as useful and relevant. It's not research for research sake, but research because it will inform decision-making or it'll inform culture or it'll inform you know, incentives. So what, I, I think we pay the rent by teaching and teaching well. This, Dave Nadler, who I should have mentioned earlier, Dave was at the University of Michigan um, and he and I started at, at Columbia together. Um, and we had to, again, pay the rent in the first year MBA course. And we developed this congruence model, which has been probably my most 
among my most impactful pieces of writing. It's a way to look at how and why organizations work the way they do. And it was a way for us to integrate the literature on processes and design, capabilities and culture, and strategy and senior teams in a language and in a framework that had an impact in the classroom. So that, that, that it's incumbent upon us to teach well enough. And, and if you have some passion, you teach excellently, but you gotta teach something. And in our field, it can't be a little bit of this, a little bit of that, except which you have this organizing framework, which I have had over the years with this framework that Charles, Dave Nather and I, and then Charles and I uh, adapted it over time, Charles O'Reilly. Uh, that has been really fundamental to my teaching and to, earning credit in the MBA classroom. Um, and then that got me out of uh, MBA land into a, uh, doing an elective in MBA land, partly with Mary Tripses when she was at HBS, and then to executive education. And this congruence model, it was really the beginning of ambidexterity because you know structural ambidexterity is multiple alignment simultaneously senior teams and paradox so that congruence thing was a way both to integrate the research and it helped me get better ideas on evolution i'm not sure i answered the question john but no. there's something about teaching in there absolutely so uh you know maybe broadening the lens a little bit what excites you today in the field of strategy what kinds of things are you working on uh, that you're bringing into the classroom, your executives. Yeah. Um, so I think this last paper you mentioned, uh, you know, again, one thing leads to another. Uh, this piece with Ryan Raffaele and uh, Marianne Glynn um, on identity. And basically, what I, I want to say to my strategy colleagues is like, strategy is important. Um, but even more fundamental than strategy, I believe is this, who are you and what you do, the identity of the firm. Um, and, and that's sort of separate from execution. Um, but I'm really super interested now in this notion of passion, uh, this notion of identity and the role of leaders in shaping the identities of their firms and this overarching frame within which paradox can exist. It's a narrative, you know, if you're, you aspire to be the world's greatest container corporation, then you have the ability to do all kinds of different forms of containment. So I'm, I'm super interested in bringing back passion. This is way back, by the way, to Chester Barnard. This is, this is not the first time people have been talking about passion. Chester Barnard, Phil Selznick on infusing the organization with value. That's like a super old idea. We just want to bring it back to our strategy colleagues. I think strategy too often is passionless. And that's important, but it's important to embed that, these analytics in something that people can sign up for and be emotionally engaged in. So that, that's one thing. Uh, the second stream that I'm working on, John, I spend a lot of time with current students on is the impact of um, sort of openness 
you know, in a world where everything can be modular and the cost of communication and computation is zero, then the locus of innovation, which for most of my career was in the firm, now moves to the community. That was Liz Altman's work um, and my recent students' work is the how do you manage and how do you deal with ecosystems where the firm is a player in a larger ecosystem and the role of openness and distributed innovation on the firm. Uh, and finally, this is not, not what I'm working on, but those of you who are students now, this issue of um, sort of COVID and what COVID means to firms. Um, I think it makes the work on strategy and innovation and organizational learning more important. Um, but I'm just not sure that all the assumptions and the theoretical machinery we built beforehand are right for a post-COVID world. I just don't know. Um, but I think there's, there's something around punctuation and there's something around distributed technology and there's something around learning that in this COVID world, we've got to get our hands around. So if I was a current student, you cannot not work on this issue of how COVID is affecting organizations. But that takes place more broadly in a world where the locus of innovation is now no longer firm-centric, it's now community-centric. And the notion of leadership in that world and the, the locus and the notion of decision-making in that world, I think is quite different. Yeah, you bring up a good point. Obviously, this is affecting all of us in uh, unexpected ways. And I think, you know, certainly it's affecting many industries. Higher education uh, is one of them. The Harvard Business School case study model. Right. And, I, and I'm struggling with this now. So I, this is a real this is a question I'm really anxious to hear you answer. Case studies are hard to do on Zoom, <laughs> quite frankly. I'm wondering how do we deal and how do we approach what has become the bedrock of business school education, yep. i.e., you know, the Harvard case study method in right. a COVID Zoom world. Yeah. So universities in general, at HBS in particular are built around physicality. We demand that our students and our executives come to campus and we build campuses around face-to-face -face interaction. This, this COVID thing where legally people can, we can, I cannot go to campus. This is an existential threat to every university on the planet. Um, So we got to figure this out. This is one of these punctuated chains. This is what an exogenous shock that we all have to deal with. Um, I actually think, so I've, I, I was sort of, so that, that, that's the point. We, we all need to shift our strategies to a different customer base, a different client base, a different technology of teaching. Um, and sort of get over it. You know, get over the fact that we used to teach face to face. Now we don't. We teach through Zoom. I actually think that, so I've done, I teach in the Harvard Business Analytics Program. We, for whatever reason, Kareem Lakani 
and several other faculty from around the university started this program like three or four years ago. And it was built, John, it was built where it would be fully online and students would come to campus for one weekend. That's it. So we, we built a fully online program. And when Kareem asked me to join, I said, hey, this is like, this cannot possibly be any good. Um, well, I've come to learn. So there, there, there are three things in education. One is content delivery. The second is community. One, can you deliver content well? Two, can you build a community? And when they're on campus, you build a community. And the third is certification. Do you get a degree or do you get a certificate? Well, I've learned through HBAP that I can deliver the case method in an engaging way online. It's not 100%, but it's maybe 80% as good, John, than being directly in your face, moving right in your face. But it's not, it was not as bad as I thought it was. So I've been, a, and to do, I can deliver content asynchronously. So our ability to deliver content asynchronously and then synchronously through me engaging through Zoom works pretty well. And if I was, if I was Nithin Noria, the Dean of the Harvard Business School, I'd be saying to myself, this is better or not better, it's almost as good, it's faster and it's way less expensive. I'd be super worried about the MBA program because, because that, that is vastly expensive. And when you ask people to come to campus, and this HBAT model is pretty damn good on delivering content. Okay, but the community is gonna suck because no one's ever together. Well, it turns out through Slack and through a sort of social media and one weekend, <laughs> twice over nine months, this community is pretty awesome. So I'm now pretty bullish about uh, our ability to deliver online stuff to students who've not been on campus before. Let, let me say it differently. For the brand new, I, I run the advanced management program, senior executives. If they were mid-flight and if, if they're in module two and they we're working together and they have to go home and they can't come back, they're gonna hate a Zoom classroom because they know the, they know the on-campus stuff, John. But if I start fresh, like we're doing uh, next month, and we deliver AMP solely online, this may be better. It's actually maybe a better program. So um, I would ask all the, those of you who are actually teaching to um, like get into it. And I, I guess I, 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 it's not, it's not a hundred percent as good, John, but my experience has been, it's pretty, pretty good um, on both the community angle and the content angle. And by the way, we give them, we give them, we certify them also. 
Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I think we're all facing this coming year thinking, oh boy, here we go. Um, I, and here's, and here's, the, here's the difference, John. Uh, or one last thing and I'll let you finish the question. What I do to make my classes more engaging is I give them study questions in advance um, in the Harvard Business Analytics Program, HBAT. And the students are shocked that I actually read their responses. And I know who they are. And when someone has blown off the questions, like in class, I like nail them. When someone's at home, like nodding away, I, I say, hey, Hui son, you're sleeping. Luke, like, hey, Luke, wake up. <laughs> So, the, the, and I would say, hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, Jay Mills, um, that was a really lame response to that question. And once they know that I know who they are and I'm engaged with them, the level of like interaction and the level of engagement sort of skyrockets. Yeah, that's a good tip because it's easy to get disengaged uh, with when you're just seeing names, <laughs> right? So um, uh, I think uh, this is a question which is a little uh, not uh, related to the other ones, but I know Samina likes this question a lot, so I, I want to make sure that that I, I get it in. Um, you know, and that and that is, um, you know, what what are you reading these days? A favorite author, yeah, a favorite yeah, yeah, books. Yeah. What what you know on your casual time when you're not uh, consuming uh, scholarship? What? Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of you, some of you may know Tiziana Cacharo. Tiziana is an amazing scholar uh, at Toronto. She she was a dear friend of mine, um, and when she learned that I was um, going to be emeritus moved to Emeritus Baker Foundation thing. She sent me a War and Peace. <laughs> so I have just finished War and Peace. <laughs> Compliments of Tiziana. So I, that's like a magnificent thing. I've always wanted to read it. And so that, that's, I, I knew some, either Samina or you would ask that question. That, that is my Tiziana Cacharo War and Peace story. And it is, is in fact true. So light reading. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must say it's a tome and I got the physical, by the way, I got the physical, she sent me a physical book, uh, but like every page was amazing. That's uh, <laughs> that impressive. Um, well, that's great. Uh, well, Mike, uh, first of all, let's, um, I'm going to, we're going to switch gears here, um, you know, uh, to open this up now for others to ask questions of you. Right. I think before we do that, Samina would like to take a picture of the of the gallery here. Now, what I would love is if if you feel comfortable, folks, and you're dressed well from the waist up, if you could show your video, that shows a lot better than just showing a bunch of names. So maybe I'll give everyone a minute to kind of show their video if you feel comfortable. Um, I think it, it always is a little bit more personal that way. And then I'll, I'll take the picture in a few seconds. All right, this is great. A lot of people are coming on. I know everyone's listening. You don't want to miss Mike Tushman's wise words. So, 
All right. So if everyone could look at their screen, and I'll count to three, and then I'll take the picture. All right. So one, two, three, cheese. All right. I think I got a great one. Thank you, John. Thanks, Amina. Okay. So um, we're going to use the chat for uh, questions. Uh, if you would um, enter your question in the chat, I can read it, or you're welcome to uh, raise your hand and uh, unmute, and you're welcome to uh, ask the question of Mike yourself. Uh, our first one, Olga, would you like to ask Mike your question on data collection? Yeah, thank you very much. Hello, everyone. So, yeah, my question is indeed about data collection, but it's also more about building connections with business and decision makers in organizations, because we often use confidential data, proprietary data from organizations. And in my personal experience, it's very difficult to convince organizations to share those kind of data with us. So. Right. What is your approach? How to build these connections? How to find these organizations who might be willing to share this data? How to convince them? And sometimes I also face with this situation that the more organization is willing to share their data, the more messy is this data. So they basically have nothing to hide because no one can figure out what they have. And good quality data is it's very difficult to get because companies are afraid of confidentiality issues. Right, right. Um, so I've, I've got two answers to that, Olga. Um, and um, the mo most primary answer is you should have a chair. Uh, uh, Olga, are you a doctoral student? Yes, I'm sorry, dear doctoral student. Yeah, that, that all, all of you as doctoral students need to have a chair who can help you get access to firms. Um, and again, I, I have always used exec education at, at INSEAD, um, at Columbia, now at HBS. I've, I've strategically leveraged my exec ed work both on problem formulation, as I mentioned earlier, and on getting access to data. Because these executives, because they know me uh, and they trust me, they, they, and I introduced doctoral students in the beginning of the program. I think Liz Altman may, may, may be here, I saw her name. I have all my doctoral students like, uh, 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 Hila met, the NASA, she did her dissertation at NASA because she met Jeff Davis in one of my executive programs. Um, the uh, Adam Kleinbaum project at IBM became, became real because a bunch of IBM executives knew me and then opened and were interested in social networks and performance. And Adam got like an amazing data set from IBM. Um, so, so I, I think your chair needs to have some access to firms where, where they trust him or her. Um, and the more, Olga, they can be engaged 
in your topic, the more excited, the more they can co-create with you both the research design and getting high quality data. And again, with Adam, we actually had to, one of the senior vice presidents of IBM design the research with me and Adam and Toby Stewart, by the way, was on the committee and then helped get the data from IBM. That, that's the first point. Uh, if you knock on a firm's door and have this academic question, they're going to like shut the door in your face because they're not interested in academia. They're interested in their problems. So the more you can collaborate with your chair, the better. The other is in my earlier studies with, um, with Elaine uh, Romanelli and Phil Anderson and um, Mary Benner, much of the data came from public sources. Um, we did these industry studies of various industries and that came from public sources. So there was not an issue on getting access from firms. So that's, that's one answer to it, Olga. Either you rely on public sources or you have access to firms because they trust you through your chair. Okay, our next question. Um, Anne, would you like to ask this of Mike? No, you can just ask it for me. Okay. Hey, yes, okay. Hi, Mike. Hello. Yeah, you can read the question. It's pretty straightforward. Okay. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It says, Mike, thanks for sharing. I have a question on behalf of doctoral students. It's a great time for addressing many important problems of our world, but students are worried that journals still like papers on traditional topics, strong theories, strong methods, important problems may be ill-defined and no theory seems to fit. What's your advice on having them have the courage to study problems they actually care about? Many want to have an impact on practice, but are not sure that the journals and the tenure committees care about that. Yeah, boy, that's like a really big deal question, Ann. Um, I've had uh, an ongoing debate with our journals about fresh and different theories and methods. I think my career has been filled with battles with the editors of our various journals. <laughs> and somehow I've survived. But there is a conservatism in our journals that is Tom Kuhn circa 2020. The structure of scientific revolutions was not only important back then, it's important now. So I, I think that is really the case. I think that if you have the courage and the passion to work on some problem of practice, um, I, 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 but on the other hand, I still believe that important, that theory is important. And I don't believe it's sociological theory or theory from psych or theory from economics, but it's theory that comes together, cross boundary theory about some phenomena in. I, I still think it's important to get your theoretical ideas out there and test it empirically um, and do battles with the uh, journal system. I'm, I'm not sure that's a good answer 
Um, but where universities still have this world where you get promoted by your reputation in the field and the reputation in the field is from where you've published, I, I do think that's a real issue. Um, but, and, and I do, by the way, feel, feel that the field is fair. So when people send their articles, uh, when people, th their work is sent out for peers, senior people to review, people do a pretty good job on that. Um, and if it's pl not placed in a first tier journal, but appears in a second or third tier journal, and it's a breakout piece, I think faculty recognize that. But I still think that Anne's general point is well taken. If you're really interested in practice and uh, have a more practitioner oriented point of view, then you're probably not gonna make it uh, you know, through the journal system. And do you want to? You want to? Should we talk about that? Um, that that's my first reaction to your question. I, I don't know if it's appropriate in this setting. I mean, there might be some other questions, but I love to keep uh, push it a, a couple steps further. I'm not. Please. I'm not saying theory is not important. Is that okay, John? Yes, please, please. Yeah. We, we'll, I'm we'll not get saying the that questions. theory is not important. It's absolutely important. That's the only way we understand the problem and hopefully find. Um, so cocoa solutions, but possible and understanding and, and, and answers to the problem. So that, that's absolutely no, no debate about that. Um, but I think the fundamental problem is structural and socialization. I, I feel as students just really feel they're very powerless, but actually they are not because young scholars too, because journals can only publish what they get. And if we start sending in papers all an important problem, well done. I really believe journals welcome that. So there's some level of misconception about what journals like and that conservatism is there, that's in the hands of the reviewers. But I'm just trying to see if you can uh, help kind of think about how do we empower the doctoral students to believe they actually have lots of power. Yeah, oh, that's change a great, the field. Yeah, 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 that's a great point. And I actually think that, um, that basic insight that doctoral students have more power than they think they have is, is exactly right. Faculty need you almost more than you need them. Um, so you need to know that, that might sound pretty weird, but, but I have needed my students as much as they needed me. That, that's point one. But in terms of the, the, the journals, let, let, me, let me give you an example. Nila Lifshitz was a student of mine a while ago. She did some work at NASA. And she discovered something at NASA, which, which seemed like the traditional not invented here, where these scientists at NASA rejected open or distributed innovation. Uh, out, of, out of like 100 heliophysicists, 90 rejected it. And it's the same old, same old, not invented here. But she found that 10 loved it. And we said, wow, this is something here about identity, organizational identity, professional identity, and boundary preparation. And I can't tell you, Anne, how beaten up she was in the review process. But, you know, she kept at it. 
And she eventually won over the reviewers because of the beauty of her data. I mean, it was ethnographic. It was like bulletproof the data. You couldn't poke holes in the data. And she had a really wacky kind of theory that wasn't just this and it wasn't just that. It was cooked up for this particular phenomena. And I think that if, you, if Gila were here, uh, I'm not sure she's here in this session, she would say, oh my God, um, that was pretty brutal. But at the end of the day, this article won the best, you know, article from a dissertation uh, last year or two years ago at, at, uh, for, uh, at the Academy. So I think that courage, and she was pretty stubborn. W one was stubborn, two had courage, and I, I personally supported because I knew she had something really unique. And I knew the reviewers were, were like way off. They were super conservative. I remember there's a phrase, good research is not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So you have good stuff, good ideas, persistence, and strong methods, and important problems. Yeah. You win over the field. Yeah. Very well That's said. That's the courage I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. I completely, Thank you. Thank you, I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Um, yeah, I think I'm pronouncing it. Aline, uh, we got into the research practice link question. I we got into that subject a little bit. You're welcome to uh, to ask and and ask your question if we didn't quite cover what you were you were asking in the chat box. Is Aline there? Uh, you, you're on mute. She might be on mute. Yeah. Yes, you are on mute. Yes, you are on mute. Aline Elias? Yeah, I tried to unmute. Um, thank you, John and Samina. Uh, it's our pleasure to meeting um, Dr. Tushman. Um, yeah, I think Anne already covered um, like a lot of that concern of mine. Um, it's, it's more about like uh, joining the literature conversation while at the same time being useful to organizations and um, theory at the same time. Now coming from a practical background, um, yeah. And so what's the question, Aileen? How can we uh, appeal to both uh, like journals and at the same time uh, be practical? Yeah, well, I think those are, those are two completely different papers, Aileen. Um, what I meant by you, to me, you, you, get, you get problems that are important by talking to the phenomena. And then you do research, like this thing with Gila, you know, this research that, that, that is important theoretically and empirically in the field wants to know more about professional organizational identity and preparation and so forth. But, but the extent to which Gila wants to have an impact on practice, she's going to have to write a Sloan Management Review article or a California Management Review article or an HBR article. It's a, a completely different outlet for her practical stuff. But, but, but I know it could hit, should she want to do that? Because the, the basic insight came from Jeff Davis, who was the head of, of life sciences at NASA saying, oh, wait a minute, I completely missed this identity thing. And so that led to her this like path-breaking research. And should she want to do an HBR, Sloan, California management, she could do that too. But I, I think it's really completely separate audiences and the writing, like my writing with Charles 
our, our, our books that he and I have done, most recently, Lead and Disrupt, that is explicitly meant to be useful to practitioners and not be laughed away by our professional colleagues. I mean, we, we want this book to be both professionally respected, like it's not a joke, and readable to executives, oh yeah, wow, I, sh I should have thought of that, I, I, I can use that. But it's, a, it's a, diff a very different kind of writing than our AMR-ish writing or ASQ writing. Um, so th those are different writing projects. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Our next question, um, Hui Sun, would you like to ask uh, your identity question or your identity battle question? Okay. Yes. Um, so thanks a lot for sharing. It's been really uh, grateful for us to have this opportunity to hear the great advice. So I actually have a question about how you fight the battle with um, existing identity community, because I mean, there are a lot of topics in our field that have a long legacy and the long legacy tend to have a lot of branches and it's hard to convince everybody. So I wonder if you have like, if you don't mind sharing some of your strategies in convincing this audience about it important and valuable, but uh, I mean, your approaches may differ from the existing frameworks. Yeah, you, you mean on these professional, diff, you know, how, how different members of our profession see a particular topic? Huisun, is that, is that the question? Uh, yeah, because I mean, you mentioned that um, it's hard to please the these ex existing communities. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. So I wonder like how you introduce a new idea that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, let me just stick with an example. Um, this paper with um, Ryan Raffaele and uh, Marian Clint. We first sent it to AMR and it got the traditional identity crowd and we got completely clubbed and we tried to respond to their comments but they coded it they coded us as attacking the world of identity and it was rejected um and the end this is we mentioned earlier like i was pissed I've written a bunch of fine papers, and this is among my best. And these three reviewers, like, totally, you know, we couldn't crack it. We tried really hard after three, after several rounds of review. Um, we said, hey, God, all right, we're, we're not going to make it through the identity door. Um, and we went to um, uh, SMJ. And we framed it for the editor as it's, it's, it's strategy, identity, and change, something like that. And we really made it clear in our letter to the editor, I, I think it was Connie, that, that we've been through this identity thing in AMR. It's not going to work. Send it to strategy people because we really want to impact the strategy crowd. We want to impact the technology crowd. We want to impact the innovation crowd. I basically wrote off the identity crowd. And we get great reviews. 
the SMJ reviews made the pit made the paper way better. So I mean, that, that, it's it's. Um, anyway, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but there are these battles out there, and you need to know that they're there and be aware of it. And sometimes you get a, a, an opening, like Hila got an opening, but we did not. But but in the paper with Ryan and Marianne, we did. Thank you. So um, the next question, Joshua uh, Ekblad, would you like to, Joshua, would you like to jump in here? Yes, uh, thank you, John, so much for pronouncing my name correctly. Thanks for that. Um, and also for providing this, this very valuable forum. Uh, it's really amazing uh, set of talks that you guys are doing and that I'm enjoying. Uh, let me just read what I wrote in the, in the message uh, board. Um, so uh, hi, would love to have your thoughts on how your more recent work on organizational identity relates to earlier work on structural ambidexterity. Specifically, the former seems to rely on a more top-down view of firms, uh, such as leadership, sponsorship, uh, whereas the latter seems more to highlight bottom-up agency in independent organizational subunits. So I think mm -hmm. of champions uh, in that context. Uh, so I would appreciate your take on my assumptions and I'm, you know, thinking about this in the context of corporate venturing units, uh, which to me operate very much um, like these sort of ambidextrous um, structures and the extent to which there's a, there's a lot of agency that goes on inside of these units and in a way they operate in a very entrepreneurial manner. And I come from, I'm a former startup guy myself, so I've always viewed your work in that light and I've always seen it as a very agency-driven, very right. bottom-up uh, kind of championing the individual right. with these large, complex right. organizations with various logics. So I'd just like to understand how the identity work, is this a different? No, yeah, I get the question, Joshua. Great, great question. Um, Structural MI dexterity does indeed build in agency. You know, if you think about variation, selection, and retention, or more recently, this ideation, incubation, and scaling, that the ideation or the variation is very much a decentralized, autonomous, random variation kind of thing. The problem is, Joshua, um, that they get when you, when you try to go to scale inside a GE or some incumbent firm, Schlumberger or whatever, when you try to take the variation and go to scale, I even think incubation is easy. I think that that ideation incubation is trivial and you get all this autonomous behavior. But going to scale is like really difficult. Most most of the variation gets killed by the exploit unit. So the extent to which you have an exploit unit with all the power and all the resources, you got all this variation on the explore, almost always the exploit kills the exploit. The reason I fell into paradox and then more recently identity um, is because that, that, that identity can provide a logic whereby the exploit can actually 
collaborate with the explorer to go to scale. So it's an agency at a higher level. Basically, it's a social movement kind of agency where at the senior team level, you're building this more encompassing, more abstract identity. Or we're in the work with Ryan and Marianne, we're broadening the cognitive frame so that the exploit person can say, hey, wait a minute, I kind of get why we're doing the explore. And if the incentive, if they have common fate incentives, we're going to have both going on simultaneously. So the, the reason I got to senior teams and then paradox and now identity is because the exploit in a very much a population ecology world, the explorers got killed unless there is a senior team that can hold attention. And one way to hold attention and hold the paradox is, oh yeah, we're here to do great containment or we're here to keep plants healthy. Or at NASA, what, what literally Gila fell into was those 10% of the scientists, Joshua, who embraced open innovation said, we're here at NASA not to do great heliophysics research. We're here to keep astronauts safe in space. And that little coding thing, that's what I do. I keep astronauts safe in space. That permitted them to do great heliophysics research and open innovation at the same time. So that, that's a kind of long-winded answer to, yeah, there's a lot of agency down here, but without uh, overarching identity in the senior team that can handle paradox, this, this variation gets, gets selected out. Thank you. It's, it's very interesting. And just one last follow-up question. What's the mechanism that you have in mind for that? Is it that somehow it mitigates self-censorship or is it some direct action coming from the, the top management team? Uh, the, the mechanism is that when you have a senior team that embraces paradox because they understand it in their heads as we're here to keep astronauts safe in space, that the heliophysics researchers code open innovation, not as a threat, but as an opportunity. The coding of that thing switches from a threat to, hey, wow, this is going to help me do my job better. And if you can, if you can help that coding, and to me, the, the, the um, not invented here syndrome that has been around in our field forever is around coding mismatches, if you will, is where you code thing as a threat and therefore kill it, as opposed to an opportunity to live into this aspiration of, you know, at HBS, it's um, training leaders who make a difference in the world. And when it's that abstract, you can do it, John, through, through, you know, the web, and you can do it through face-to-face -face education. I think that's the mechanism, Joshua, is in the senior team. And by the way, when there's a common fate incentive, hey, now I kind of, I kind of see. That's why we're investing in this exploratory stuff. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Our next question. Uh, uh, Andrea Vessendorf, would you like to uh, ask your question about uh, multiple theoretical perspectives? Yes, thank you. First of all, thank you again for organizing this and for taking your time to um, share your experience with us. 
Um, my question is because you're drawing or you're studying problems from, from various theoretical perspectives, which I think is very rich and um, yeah, sheds different lights onto, onto a phenomenon. But I wonder, looking at the same phenomenon from very different perspectives, um, in the publication process, you usually tend to draw on two different theories or two different perspectives. Did you ever think that that was a constraint or um, did you usually think that helped you focus? How did you deal with that? Well, really from the get-go, uh, Andrea, um, actually once I moved away from socio my early sociometric work and the information processing work, with, there was a literature and I was squarely in that literature. Once I moved to this punctuated change, dominant design, and by dexterity thing, that's when I had to bring in multiple literatures. Mm -hmm. but, but, I was, but what helped me with the reviewers was we're interested in a particular dependent variable. Like, like the early work with Elaine was these firms died and those firms didn't. And taking a strategy, innovation, OMT, literatures to explain that dependent variable. So I've always found when you have a dependent variable or you have some phenomena that reviewers find of interest, and this is back to, to Anne's notion earlier, the extent to which you can pull together an interesting provocative theory that crosses boundaries, that's great. But, but the dependent variable, the phenomena has to be something that people care about. If it's just another slice of population ecology, like nobody cares, except the people who are in population ecology. But it, but if it's some dependent variable that, you know, OT person or strategy or innovation person, yeah, go figure it out. That's that's what helped me and my students deal with the review process. Okay, thank you. Mike, we have a question that was submitted <clears throat> before. Uh, and this is related to your, I think, comment right now about uh, DVs. Uh, is what do you see as the main questions in the innovation literature at the moment? What DVs maybe should we be thinking about? And a related, maybe I'll just throw this out since it's kind of related. Is you know, folks who are interested, particularly in platform organizations and ecosystems, and, yeah. and whether that's part of the answer yeah I, I, is liz Albin here uh, liz are you here i, I saw uh, you yes. hi mike I, I say hey liz we should all congratulate liz she just got married so congratulations again liz and she's actually on this session uh, that, thank you uh, so i i learned about platform so this whole notion of platform organizations uh, and platforms and innovation and openness i mean that is a like gigantic space that strategy scholars, uh, OMT scholars, innovation scholars ought to go to. The dealing with platforms as opposed to the firm. I basically think the Chandlerian firm that many of us grew up with, the basic Chandlerian firm is toast and it's like going away fast. It's not that it's totally gone, but this sort of platform ecosystem world and I'm not sure there's a dependent variable there, but that's the theoretical machinery I'd like to work with. Um, 
and I, I really learned that through um, Liz Altman. Um, other dependent variables, I, you know, I just don't know, John. I, I don't. I just because I'm 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 focused now on this issue of passion and identity, I'm sort of like zoned into that. So I don't have a good handle on what other important dependent variables would be. But I would encourage you. This is back to either Adam or Mary mentioned that in their note, is to find something that you can be identified with, either some dependent variable or some mediating variable that can say that, hey, yeah, that is, that is you. And in fact, Liz and I are working on a paper, a, a paper now with another colleague that we're, we're gonna try to capture this label. Um, so whether it's a dependent variable or mediating variable, it's some kind of theoretical framework that can people can identify you with and it can spawn a bunch of papers a bunch of empirical papers so liz good to see you by the way um you know <clears throat> your your co-authors have come up many times and uh, this is kind of a, a question related to something that was submitted but uh, how how do you or may, maybe a better way to phrase it is how would you recommend that junior scholars choose co-authors, collaborators, you know, senior versus junior, uh, someone who studies what you do versus somebody who provides compliments. Could you maybe provide some advice uh, to folks in that, uh, in that area since we're all always struggling with that one? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, as I think back on my career, um, my co-authors have either been students who I've worked with um, early in their career, and then they go off, um, or friends. Um, so I did a bunch of work with Ralph Cates, good friend of mine, Charles O'Reilly, dear friend of mine. So it, it's either people who I love to work with uh, or students who I love to work with. Um, and, I, and I think it's, and it's, um, and it's, it's, it's really that, that, hey, do you have the, and, and my collaboration with students is all based on, can we think and do creative stuff together? It's not, it's just sort of this sharing, it's having co-authors who you can share and brainstorm with. And there's no, um, there's no impediment to that. Uh, whether they be students or whether they be um, uh, just plain old friends. Um, I, I think that's the way I've, ch I've chosen them, John. Um, but again, yeah, anyways, that's, that, that would be my answer. Thank you. Samina, I think you had uh, indicated that you had a question. I, I have a serious question, then I have some fun questions. So, um, a serious right. question, Mike. Something I, I like to know is when you were growing up and in your childhood, was there someone that was pivotal or an event that was pivotal in your life? Yeah. Um, yeah, so there was, there was um, in, in terms of my academic career, uh, I grew up with an extended family in the Boston area. Um, and one of my uncles, uh, Mars Cohen was uh, a very famous professor at MIT, 
and like he had these various titles uh, and he eventually became an institute professor at MIT. And those of you who know MIT, it doesn't get any more statureful than being an institute professor. In fact, he became an institute professor the year he became an institute professor. He was a material scientist, by the way. Uh, Morris Cohen and Paul Samuelson became institute professors at the same time. I said, wow, this guy's my uncle. <laughs> so what, so he had like a huge impact on me as an academic. And I was in, when I was in high school de debating should, would, where to go to college, Morris, I went, my parents took me to Morris Cohen, major league professor, and he looked at my grades and said, wow, like something like, this is nothing to write home about, or something like, like, oh my God, this is a little bit embarrassing. What are you gonna do? <laughs> and that really, that really, from him at that moment, that led to um, like pretty amazing shift. And that was a, a pivotal moment in my career. It was my uncle and always admiring his professorialism and then getting that pretty direct feedback that, hey, you're pretty mediocre. Sometimes we need someone else to knock us back to reality, right? Yeah, and perhaps more than our parents. But partly that's the role of parents, but in this case, it, it was it was my uncle. I'm convinced my kids listen to anyone else and but, other than me and my yeah. husband. So maybe that's what it what it yeah. took. So actually, before I ask my other question, John, I think Anne and Kate both have a question as well. Okay, Kate, yeah, you had two comments about the identity uh, issue. Kate Walker? Is Kate still there? I see Kate. Oh, Kate, are you on? Yes, I am. Yeah, we can hear you. You want to ask your question? Uh, yes, uh, it's a definition of um, identity that uh, you use. Uh, seems to be identity research. Very focused. Hey, I can't. I can't. I can't hear you, Kate. I don't know. Uh, the, it seems to be I, the definition of identity is identity research. What What is the What is the identity research that you? There are many ways you can define identity. Many many ways. And it seems to me that you are uh, talking about identity research. Maybe Samina can translate that. So, Anne, are, uh, Kate, I'm sorry. Are you are you asking what does he mean by identity research? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Because it seems to me that he, the whole conversation was about identity research. So, Mike, I think her question is, you know, what what did you mean mean by identity research here? Uh, exactly. uh, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, here's 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 my answer, Dad, and I'm happy to discuss this with you. I think I, I the 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 identity is the answer to who are you and what do you do as a firm. So when, if, if I want to get at identity and I'm talking to a general manager or a division general manager or CEO, 
the, the question I will ask that person is at, at the end of the day, what is your firm? Who are you and what do you do? And I'll simply listen to what they say, Kate. And that I will code as the identity of that firm. And basically the paper with, with, um, with Ryan and Marianne asks leaders to separate who you are from what you do. And if you put it together, that's a recipe for failure. But when you separate what you do, which is to be strategy from who you are, which is more abstract, that permits you to do this variation selection retention stuff that we talked about earlier. So that's what I think about uh, at, 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 as firm level identity, Kate. Kate, does that answer your question? Okay, I didn't quite, I didn't quite hear her, but I'm going to assume that's a yes. <laughs> um, and uh, it's very interesting because it's uh, about, uh, there are many ways you can, uh, as I said before, you can uh, um, define identity, but this one, is, uh, you, were being you were being talking about identity research and I was not quite sure what you meant by it. So it's identity of the firm it, and it's very useful um, uh, that you actually clarify that you have to separate who you are and what you do. Right. Uh, because then it's going to define um, your research design completely in a different right. way. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, that's the whole point of that paper with Ryan and, and uh, Marianne Glynn, is to separate them out, keep them empir empirically and conceptually distinct, and then Ryan is now working on actually empirically doing that. Thank Great. Thank you, Kate. So I'll, um, um, given the time, I'm going to, Anne gives me permission here, I'll read her uh, question about uh, social innovation. Uh, Mike, she asked, what, what about social innovation? Do we know a lot about it? It seems to me that this is an area that can contribute to both theory and solve societal problems like poverty, inequality, justice, climate, et cetera. Yeah, yeah that, that's super great. And um, I think in this day and age, uh, this social innovation um, probably could not be more important. Um, I, I think of Julie Badalana's work um, on dual organizations. And these are organizations that do well and do good. So they're, they're not, not for profit. They're organizations that on the one hand do have a profit dimension and they have a doing well dimension simultaneously. Um, so I, I, I think whether it's work on not-for-profits um, or whether it's this dual hybrid organization work, I think our field, it's incumbent upon us as a field to do more on that social innovation space. <clears throat> for example, um, let me just give you one example. And again, I have the, the opportunity of being, I mean, I am a senior professor and I've been around for a long time, but be, because I was, I was sufficiently interested in what I think about as social innovation, I sort of inserted myself into the Graduate School of Education here at Harvard. So I now teach a doctoral course in that world and I'm doing some research on public education. And I'm not sure that would be social innovation, Anne, 
but it's taking uh, the work in our field on innovation, strategy, and change, and bringing it to the space of public education, which desperately needs innovation, strategy, and change. Um, I think that is particularly, I, I'm not sure I would coach untenured faculty to do that because I'm both teaching in the ed school and the business school, but just in terms of a pure research play, I think um, my go-to person on that is Julie Badalana, and she's had a magnificent career in that space of, space of social innovation. Thank you. I just don't see enough in the management literature. So I was wanting you to say a few words about that to encourage yep. our young colleague to. That's yep. a really important space to go into. Absolutely. And, and what, we, what we can contribute from the business school space right. to social innovation and public sector innovation is like, couldn't be more important these days. Right. Thank you. Okay. Um, again, if you have any questions, uh, please enter them in the box. I think Samina had some, uh, <laughs> some additional fun questions, uh, Mike. So <laughs> for you. I have so many questions for Mike. Um, Mike, a serious question first is, I'm sure you've been asked often to write letters for people. And so along with doctoral students, we have a lot of junior faculty on the call. So uh -huh. what advice would you give to assistant professors as they're working through their tenure clock and writing their research statements and identities um, for, uh, for the field to, to get to know them and to decide on tenure? So what was the question again, Sumia? What advice, what advice would you give to assistant professors as they're approaching their tenure clock and getting uh, ready to present their portfolio of work to letter writers? Yeah. Um, well, I think two things. One, one is um, through, and again, I'm not sure what the implications of COVID is for the academy, but um, people need to know you. People in your research community or what I've been pitching out, multiple communities need to know you and code your work as, hey, this is really unique and quirky and different and solid. So they need, they, they need to be able to code you as a first-class scholar. The other uh, advice, and, and maybe if you're three or four or five years into the mission, it may be ex post, but I always look when I'm writing letters, is there a research stream here? Is, does, does this add up? Is it a series of eight papers that are all different and therefore less than, I mean, it's, a, it's hard, you're hard pressed to create a narrative about person X who has eight papers that are all fine, but they're in eight different areas. This person has no identity. It just, this is a, a person who knows how to do research and can crank, do the crank and produce something. I would much rather see, uh, you know, eight papers on two topics or, or eight papers on one topic. And you're, you're really building out a research. And let's just take, you know, Anne's notion of social innovation. I mean, the reason that Julie Badalana was able to get so many fantastic letters 
is because she had like a whole bunch of papers that were all around this no notion of hybridity and duality. And, and uh, she had a bunch of colleagues and she was able to be part of a community on social innovation. And, and you know, however number of papers it was, I don't remember the number of papers, but it had a much bigger impact than a bunch of singles, if you will. So I, I would like, again, start with a big, important dependent variable or a big, important phenomena and a big, important sort of theory, AMR-ish kind of thing, and then build a set of empirical pieces around that. Right. And, and, get, and, and get involved in the academy. Like this is a really, what, what Samina and John and the board members in the strategy group, then that is so important to get involved in the academy. I, I like how you, you brought it back to really research identity, right? That's, that's yeah. kind of what I heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And, I, and I'm hoping through actually these are all of our Stronger Together initiatives. Uh, this is, you know, addressing some of Anne's questions. We're socially innovating, even how we're all connecting and as, as AOM as an organization, how we, how we function. Um, so Mike, I have a few fun questions that I've asked everyone for, for who I've been able to, to participate. So. We want to know what is your favorite dessert? My, my favorite dessert? Um, my favorite dessert would be the one I had yesterday, a, a chocolate chip ice cream. Uh huh, chocolate chip ice cream. Okay, okay. And, and I'm sure you have. Empirically, I had that yesterday. So I, I know that's, that's, I have some data on that. Is there a recency effect here? Okay. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I'm sure you've traveled the world. What is your favorite city? Oh, that's easy. Um, that's like a no-brainer. Um, my, my favorite city is Paris. Ah, oh, Paris, okay. Go back in Paris in a heartbeat, my wonderful wife. Uh, when I, was, I visited INSEAD many times and we lived in Paris and commuted to Fontainebleau and um, she did her first book on the markets of Paris. So we, we kind of know Paris pretty well beautiful place beautiful place yeah um, you mentioned when when John asked the question of, of what you were reading and you mentioned uh, Tolstoy um, what I think all of us want to know we know you're so prolific you're so busy you give to so many doctoral students what do you do in your free time or how do you unplug yeah so uh, we have um, my wife and I have three grandchildren, so we, I'm not sure unplugging is the right word, but three, three grand, we have three grandkids and they did, were just with us for the past week. So I'm not sure I would call that unplugged, Samina, but we were with our three grandkids uh, this past week. But, but, but beyond that, um, we've really gotten into um, the physicality of gardening. I mean, where my academic stuff is very head stuff abstractness and writing and being in my office being in the garden is very sort of anchoring in in like totally the real world so our that's a newfound um passion of mine is is sort of is gardening taking, taking care of our garden and working the garden and and it's with some real tangible benefits i hope if you can keep the honey rabbits and deer out yeah 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 totally and and, and the vegetables from that garden yeah, that's wonderful. Something meditative. That's, that's great. Totally. Um, 
Well, thank you. You know, Mike, we've, we've taken so much of your time. I want to thank you on behalf of the division for giving us your time. And I think I speak on behalf of everyone that we've, we learn a lot. I learn every time I hear from you. Um, so thank you so much. We have, you know, a lot in common, Mike and I, we, we both started out as electrical engineers. And I remember you uh, congratulating me when I moved to Northeastern. Right. And that meant Absolutely. So, much so thank you. I'm going to turn it over to John to, to close out our session. Great. So thank yeah, you for yeah. making this happen, Samina. Uh, thank you, Samina. So, Mike, I, I give you the last word here. Is there, you know, do you have any words, for lack of a better um, way of saying it, hope or positivity for our group of uh, scholars here online in this time of difficulty? Anything you kind of, you know? Yeah, I, I guess I think that um, in this world, in this sort of pandemic-infused world, the stuff we do could not be more important. The research we do in strategy, innovation, leadership, change, I mean, it could not be more important. And the extent to which we are teaching in business schools, whether it be MBAs or whether it be executives, they are at the proverbial coalface and dealing with an unprecedented crisis. And this in terms of our ability to have an impact, it doesn't get any better. And just in terms of research opportunities, this is, uh, you know, every hundred years or so, there's some kind of exogenous shock. Well, here's an exogenous shock that, that affects the strategy of every single firm, not just in an industry or a country, but around the world. And so as a research opportunity, it probably doesn't get any better. And again, that, that, that also overlaps with the stuff that, that uh, Liz was talking about earlier on platforms, is that we're now living in a, in a post-Chandlerian world uh, where the nature of innovation and strategy is now shifting. And, and because of that, leadership is shifting. So it's a great time to be a doctoral student and a great time to be uh, a young professor at a professional school because Boy, the world needs us more than ever. Thank you. A message of impact and opportunity. It's a nice way to end. I um, want to say thank you very much to uh, Mike Tushman for just a, just a thoroughly enjoyable two hours. So, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're wel welcome. I really had a blast, guys. Also, a thanks to uh, Samina and the SDR division for uh, organizing uh, these. Uh, we've had a few. We have a few more. Uh, I know, I don't know if there's one before, but I know there's one on Friday with Ed Zajac because I'm moderating that one. <laughs> so, uh, but the, the calendar is available on the website, right? Yes. And, and one people every can still weekday. And people can still sign up for those. So please do. Thanks to everyone for Zooming in uh, today. Uh, please all stay safe uh, and healthy, and hopefully we'll see each other in person soon. Great. Very good, everybody.